Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is signaling a tougher stance on cooperation with the Liberals in Parliament, stating that he will withhold votes if he doesn't agree with legislation. We'll talk about that. The Biden administration south of the border is getting ready to boost at-home rapid testing with a $1 billion investment. Here in Canada, well, rapid tests aren't even readily available to the public. Why is that? And a global energy crisis is creating sticker shock this long weekend at the gas pump. Gas prices are going to hit record highs. What's causing the climb? We'll discuss it. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The jockeying up at Ottawa uh, continues a couple of days after the election, of course. It's time for the uh, political parties to do an assessment on how they performed during the election and uh, and looking forward. It's another minority government, of course, and there's some speculation as to just how long this is going to last. And a lot of that will depend, certainly, on Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. Well, at their uh, caucus meeting after the election, uh, Mr. Singh uh, signaled that uh, he's going to take a tougher approach to cooperation with the minority Liberal government. Uh, speaking uh, to the caucus uh, just after uh, they little get together in Ottawa, he says that, look, uh, we are prepared to what he says withhold votes if Prime Minister Justin Trudeau presses ahead with legislation that the NDP don't agree with. We have not outlined any red lines at this point, so I can say there's not anything that we've outlined yet. And in terms of um, withholding votes, uh, we want to do what's in the interest of Canadians. We're going to fight for Canadians every step of the way. Well, so the jockeying continues here as to just how this is going to flush out and, and, and how long a, a minority government like this can last. Uh, and, of course, a lot of it uh, depends on the kind of legislation that, that uh, the Liberals put forward, I guess, and whether or not they're going to get support from the NDP or the Bloc or wherever it might come from. Joining us to talk about uh, the way going forward for this parliament, uh, good to, uh, welcome back to the program, uh, Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're quite welcome. The juxtaposition of, okay, who's going to be where and what. Uh, I know in, in some of his other comments uh, the, earlier this week, uh, Mr. Singh said that uh, to this point, uh, Justin Trudeau had not reached out to him. There had been no phone call. There is no quote-unquote deal to, to keep the government uh, in power. Uh, do you, in these days, do, do you need a deal like that, or is, is do governments and, and opposition parties work on an ad hoc basis? In other words, like one piece of legislation at a time. Well, I, I think certainly... Uh this is uh, the order might not be quite the way Mr. Singh likes, but for starters, it's, it's a new government. I think first order of business on his on the prime minister's list is to select a new cabinet. Uh, he's going to move some people around. He's got to get ready for a throne speech. So uh, you know, it, it's a bit. Uh, it'd be odd if Mr. Trudeau put Mr. Singh ahead of either of those sets of activities. I know it's happened in the past provincially. I think it was back in the mid-'80s, wasn't it, that, uh, that the NDP and the Liberals actually signed a, an agreement. Uh, I think it was Bob Ray and, and David Peterson at the time, uh, basically to take over, and they kind of said, okay, we're going to work together on this, and they had a, a common agenda, et cetera, like that. But it seems to me, though, just historically, though, Professor, that doesn't happen very often, does it? it that, I mean, that was almost a, un, that was a unique experience, what, what, what you just described with Mr. Ray and Mr. Peterson. Uh, typically, it is ad, ad hoc. It has been ad hoc, and I don't think there's any reason, uh, if I'm on the government side, to change that arrangement. 
I am. That's not to suggest that if you don't do it that way, that uh, that you know you're bound to fail as a minority government. Uh, again, thinking back to Ontario politics, uh, Bill Davis, I think it was his last term as as premier uh, after many years, was a minority government, but it lasted almost the whole term of the, of the legislature, like almost four four and a half years or something like that. So you can work together, I suppose, if you have the mind to do it. Oh, I think absolutely you can, and I would suggest to you that they will this time around. It, I would, I'd be very surprised if, if, if there was uh, fresh elections in, in under three years. I, I tend to think you're probably right about that. I, I know that you know Mr. O'Toole, conservative leader, and and you know others have uh, once again reiterated that he thinks all oh, this might last 18 months. But that's just really just a, a carryover from one of the talking points he used to use during the election campaign. Uh, but I, I I think the point is well taken here. I don't think Canadians have an appetite for another election, uh, and I think the message, uh, pretty clear to to us, and certainly I hope to the people that are going to assemble in Ottawa again, is uh, okay. We wanted a minority government because none of you guys are blowing us away. Now go there and make it work. Certainly. And, you know, the reality is that for all of the party leaders aren't exactly on the on the firmest of ground at this point in time. So <laughs> yeah, there's no reason to, to trigger something that ultimately would also trigger their demise. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't think there's, the public doesn't have an appetite for it. Frankly, I don't think any of the party leaders have an appetite for it. Uh, and so you'll, you'll see some perform, some performative, uh, kind of activities engaged in by leaders in the run-up to reopening parliament. But it's just that. It's just a performance for their respective, uh, supporters. What about going forward here? Uh, minority governments, I know everybody would love to have a majority so they can do what they want when they want and, you know, move their, their legislative agenda forward. But isn't this a, an opportunity uh, for, for us to move forward on a couple of different things? We've seen minority governments, both federally and provincially, uh, work in the past, and we've seen some pretty, uh, I think, effective legislation passed as a result of this. Uh, is, is there an opportunity here for, well, I guess in this case, uh, the Liberals and the NDP and perhaps perhaps the block, I, I, we'll see what happens, uh, to move forward on some pretty aggressive and maybe groundbreaking legislation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, keep in mind, and I'm going to date myself, uh, <laughs> and certainly in relation to your audience, but uh, keep in mind uh, our health care system is, yep. a product, is a product of a minority government. Uh, early 1960s, uh, Tommy Douglas yes. is the leader of the NDP and Lester Pearson is the Prime Minister. And the the, the Medicare yes. custom, uh, something that I guess had been kicking around for quite some time. I know even Harry Truman, U.S. President, tried to initiate something like that and couldn't get it done. Uh, but uh, uh, you're right, it was the collaboration between the NDP and the Liberals then that got that, that program through. Mm-hmm. No, and certainly some other, other pieces of our social welfare system or are similarly products of minority governments. So I don't think we need to uh, start from a position that suggests that minority governments will mean, you know, governments won't do much. They'll simply try to move move along an inch at a time until they sense the right time for an election. I, I think minority governments can function also uh, as, a, as a device for introducing broad-based change to government policies and programs. And if we look at the players here, especially with, between the Liberals and the NDP, uh, there are some similarities, some commonalities there, too, that I think would probably enhance the possibility of, of legislation on a number of things that both of the parties have been talking about over the years. Uh, you know, pharmacare programs, uh, the daycare program seems to be off to a pretty good start. We'll see what happens when they, they pick this up again. Uh, but a number of things that they both talked about during the campaign may actually uh, be some common ground that they can support legislation like that. 
Well, I think that's the case. And, and in fact, you will see. I mean, uh, the the NDP leader has has talked about uh, extending benefits uh, in, in the context of this pandemic. I think the government is likely to do that. They've already they've also been talking about it. Uh, I, I think certainly on on the childcare front, absolutely, the parties of this are of the same mind that we need to finish the job and get deals in place as best as we as the federal government can with the holdout provinces. Uh, and even those provinces that have been holding out, Alberta might be the exception, uh, are likely to come forward and take on the program as well. And I'm including Ontario and New Brunswick in, in that group as likely coming forward, both, both new, new Conservative premiers, but both certainly Ontario's case, facing a, a re-election and stuttering under the weight of his own indecision. Exactly. And, and actually, I, I know Mr. Ford didn't say much of anything during the federal campaign, uh, but he did mention at one point that uh, that they're open to talk and, and suggestion with the program. So in other words, they didn't just say, no, we're not going to do this. I think they're going to be looking for some, some give and take, I guess, on that, but it wouldn't surprise me. But your point about uh, you know political leaders being on shaky ground and, and Jason Kenney in Alberta, uh, who seems to have been giving the daycare program a thumbs down, uh, we don't know how much longer he may be around either. His own party is turning on him. Certainly he's lagging way behind in uh, the public opinion polls in Alberta. And, and uh, Rachel Latley, of course, the former premier, the NDP leader, uh, may in fact be the premier once again, and that would certainly change the landscape for that uh, particular item, wouldn't it? Yes, it certainly would. Uh, and you're right about uh, uh, Mr. Kenny. He's. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine a, a federal politician that enjoyed such success within his own party being such a colossal failure at the provincial level. But that is seeing is believing. Well, and, you know, we've seen way too much of this, I guess, over the last little while, haven't we, Professor, of, of politicians that are guided by ideology as opposed to pragmatism, and uh, it comes back to bite you. Well, it, it does, and, and, you know, what I think what the pandemic has revealed across the board among in terms of political leadership is that perhaps, you know, the most fatal flaw for a, a political leader in, in a crisis environment is indecisiveness. And if you look around the table, you know, federally and provincially, the, prob the provinces that have had the biggest problems have been led by politicians who are remarkable for their inability to make decisions. Or obfuscating, you know, one day it's white, the next day it's black. I mean, you know, we've seen that happen with a number of different situations like that. And you're right, I think, uh, I, I get the sense that the voters of, you know, maybe it's because of the pandemic, I guess, Professor, you know, we're, we're, you know, we got a pretty short fuse right now. We're frustrated, we're angry, we're tired of this whole thing, and we're looking to get out of this, and we look to our leaders. And you're right, if you start obfuscating about this and that and the other thing, uh, you're going to be in the bad books. That's all there is to it. No, that seems to be the case. And, you know, Keep in mind as well the, the decline in turnout in, in the past federal election. That also, I think, reflects to a certain degree people's, as you put it, frustration with the way the political system has responded to this crisis. So how how do you assume is going to what whether assume is going to happen when these guys finally get back together we're not quite sure even when parliament's going to start now we're hoping it's going to be sooner than later uh and as you mentioned it'll be a, a speech from the throne where they outline some of this stuff um to the liberals in, in that speech where they talk about the 
the legislation they're intending to move forward, do they look at stuff like a pharmacare program, et cetera, et cetera, they, you know, these things that they talked about during the campaign, uh, and, and look for support from that? Or do, I, again, is this stuff that they're going to wait to see exactly what the other parties are going to be looking for? I don't think they're going to get much in the way of cooperation from the conservatives. Uh, it doesn't seem to happen. But, uh, but but you know, do they channel this whole thing, this whole uh, session of the of the uh, parliament towards what uh, getting support from the NDP? I think you'll you'll see a, a throne speech that you know kind of tries to take a, a dual approach or two track approach. On the one hand, I think there will be some emphasis on those things we can do now for the situation we're in now. So whether it's extending benefits, providing other protections for businesses. And there, I think it's, it's it, that's those are those will be relatively easy wins. That is, the Liberal government will uh, will be able to get support from one or other of the opposition parties for those things to occur. I think you'll also on the the second track will be more a reference to you know this uh, they called it building back better. Mm. Uh, it's funny them them and the and the Democrats they they the liberals and Democrats share this this kind of they like these kinds of slogans that so beyond on more long term things uh, items like pharmacare uh, uh, so I, I you know and I think the the climate and environment climate change and the environment so I I think you'll see kind of two tracks emerge and uh the first track will be relatively easy for parties to j- jump on board it's things that are going to be hard to argue against they're temporary in nature and they're meant to carry us over the hump uh then the, you'll also see though something more aspirational in terms of long term here's what we're looking at and that i think we'll probably have to wait to see any flesh on those ideas uh to the to the budget i i would come think in the new year I would think the Liberals have to have some flexibility here about the stuff they are introducing, too. You mentioned, for instance, uh, the benefit programs, CERB, and, and things of that nature for uh, people that have been impacted by the pandemic and the lockdowns. Uh, it, even initially when they presented that legislation a year and a half or so ago, uh, you know, they, they went with the NDP suggestion to top those those numbers up even higher because they didn't think it was enough money. Uh, and that seemed to be something that the, the Liberals could embrace and, and get in behind. So I'm assuming there's going to be some, some give and take between the NDP and the Liberals on some of that legislation too yeah there will be and i think even on on items like that even the block will be happy to go along uh you know i i frankly i i think the you know the 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 throne speech uh will i think be most dramatic because it will answer questions that a good number of canes have what's going to happen to the conservative party when the house opens because as you know the board of internal economy of parliament which is representatives of all parties is meeting, and it looks like the Liberals and or New Democrats are going to introduce an item to that requires all members of the House to be double vaccinated before they go onto the floor of the House. And uh, as you know, in the last campaign, the Conservatives refused to acknowledge that their members should disclose running for office whether or not they were vaccinated. And if the Board of Internal Economy approves this, it's usually by consensus, but it needn't be, uh, then there, you're, there's going to be some issues uh, that the Conservative Party is going to have to confront. And I think that will probably take away uh, m- much of the attention that otherwise might go to the opening of Parliament. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of drawing a line in the sand. But it's it, it, again, it's uh, you know they seem to have popular opinion on their side. I know that uh, O'Toole didn't seem to want to talk much about vaccinations and things of the like of the campaign. But you know, when you see survey after survey that says about eighty-five to ninety percent of the population agree uh, about mandatory vaccinations, and and now they're I guess the majority of them are agreeing that uh, booster shots are going to be necessary, and that's fine too. They're willing to roll up their sleeves. Uh, a, a couple of the parties seem to be able to, to breed into that. Uh, the Conservatives, I guess, are going to have to open their eyes to it, to what uh, Canadian people are actually expecting of them. Well, they, they, they've painted themselves into a corner, and, and it's, I, the logic of it, I was never, I could never access. I never quite understood it. I mean, as it is, uh, by the end of this month, or I guess next month, uh, it's going to be, uh, this month, it's going to be difficult for uh, Conservative members in, in western parts of the country uh, to make their way to Ottawa. They're not going to get on a plane if they haven't been vaccinated. They're not going to be able to get on a, a, a via rail. Uh, I guess they're going to get in their cars or they're going to carpool those who haven't uh, vaccinated and, and uh, drive to Ottawa. I, I, it makes virtually no sense. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see the, the dynamic and just how that shakes out. Uh, very quickly, while I got you here, though, I, I wanted to ask you about, the, as we mentioned, uh, both the NDP and the Conservatives have announced publicly that they're going to do a review of their party and their performance in this last election. Uh, and that sounds like it's a rather benign you know, report that's going to come out, uh, which I, I'm sure Tom Mulcair thought it was going to be the same thing, too, but he ended up going to that uh, policy convention in Edmonton, I believe it was, just after his defeat a few years ago and ended up losing his job. Uh, I, I understand that both, both Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh may be on thin ice right now, uh, but did they stick around for a while? Does the party hang on to them? Well, I, I think certainly uh, Mr. Singh's odds right now are probably better than Mr. O'Toole's. Uh, I, I, the party certainly needs to do an autopsy, the, the NDP, in terms of the campaign and their approach to it and, and how they uh, conducted it, and because it, it didn't work terribly well. Uh, and they have to account for that. I suspect, though, that there will be a greater willingness on their part, uh, their members' parts, to uh, give Mr. Singh another chance. Uh, Mr. O'Toole's problems are, are, are somewhat different uh, because uh, he's seen by many colleagues as someone who only entered conservative politics at the federal level. Uh, he had his eye on the leadership from the get-go. I mean, he did run twice before, winning the, the nod. And uh, that, uh, so, he, you know, barely in Parliament, he, and he's named forward to, to become leader. And he, that's, he's been a one-track uh, politician in that regard. And there are some colleagues of his who are saying, okay, you wanted the job so bad, you were running for it even while you were still very inexperienced, because your father's experience doesn't all of a sudden become yours. Uh, and... As a, as a consequence, I, I think there's there's a bit it's a bit more uh, his his ice is a little thinner. Well, it's uh, I guess something that's going to become more clear to us in the uh, the days and weeks ahead, and we'll certainly be watching with great interest. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this, uh, and uh, have a great Thanksgiving weekend. And we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Well, thank you, and the best to you and your family. Thanks so much. Uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi, uh, Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, uh, trying to get a read on what's going to be happening in this session of Parliament. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, rapid testing. We've had a, a great deal of discussion, and we'll continue to have a great deal of discussion about the vaccinations and uh, what is needed there. But uh, the, the discussion about about testing kits, especially home testing kits, seems to have kind of fallen off the table in the last little while. Uh, it did get a bit of a boost earlier this week when Ontario's chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, said that they were introducing a program here in Ontario, uh, but it's going to come at the direction of local medical officers of health and outlines uh, what happens next is really going to depend on initial results. Here's the good doctor. Children who receive a negative result on a rapid antigen screening test will continue in-person learning. Children who receive a positive result will be required to seek a lab-based PCR test at a local assessment centre or specimen collection centre and will need to isolate until the result of that lab-based PCR test is known. So that's, uh, again, going to be a voluntary program, and that's having to do strictly with the schools and individual boards of education, and, of course, medical officers of health are going to make those decisions. But what about the, the, the rapid testing that we were talking so much about a year and a half or so ago? Uh, in both Canada and the U.S., it, uh, it seems to have kind of fallen, I don't know if it's a fallen out of favor, but it just doesn't seem to be happening with the regularity that we thought it would. Joining us to talk about this is uh, David Junker. Uh, David Junker is a full professor and chair with the Department of Biomedical Engineering, at McGill University. Professor, oh, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Why is there not much of a discussion going on? I mean, even uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, we all remember him. He was the former uh, head of the uh, Center for Disease and Prevention Control down in the States under the Trump administration. But he was kind of musing the other day, I don't know if you saw that, Professor, that, you know what, we probably could have and should have done a much better job of testing and selling testing to the American public uh, back in those days. And uh, I think in the phrase he said, there was no warp speed when it came to diagnostics. Uh, that may well have been because his boss, President Trump, was not a big fan of it. But it it just doesn't seem to be, and it's, it is a key element of this. Isn't it part of the protocol in trying to flatten the curve and keep the stars down? We need to be testing more? Yeah, I, I, you're, you're talking to the converted here. <laughs> yeah, for a year we have been trying to, to promote the idea of, of, of rapid testing. And, you know, if you had told me at the beginning of the pandemic, we'll have a test in 15 minutes that will be low cost and that could detect if someone is infectious, uh, I would say that's, that's amazing. If you had a tool like that, it could really make a, such a huge difference in terms of breaking uh, the chains of infection. And, and now we have this tool. It has proven to be effective, and, and, and yet we're not deploying it to the level that it could really have a huge impact. Um, so why don't we have it here? I, oh, it, it, there's actually a multiplicity of reasons. I mean, I, one of them is the regulatory approval process, where we have very stringent uh, barriers in the FDA and Canada, Health Canada copies the FDA rules, uh, so we're not copying. So the Europeans have much more relaxed rules. They also have recognized uh, the national authorities that these rapid tests. Now, rapid tests are not to tell if you are infected so much, but they're to tell whether you are at risk for others. Am I at risk for infecting someone else? And that just doesn't click so well with a lot of the medical community and the public health officials who have been in charge of this. And so we have not really, well, we have not approved them in, the, in large numbers and not deployed them in the way that we, can, that we could have. And, and, and the other challenge, of course, in Canada that we have, you know, on one hand, the federal government actually has tried, promoted these tests and bought millions of these tests, but then often they got stuck at the, at the provincial level where then they didn't really know how to roll them out or were skeptical about them. Um, and, and as a result, we have a lot of these tests being, being left on the shelves. They, they almost got 
dismissed by a number of people right off the get-go, though, especially, as you say, the home tests. Uh, you know, like I said, well, you know, they're not 100% reliable. They're not as, 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 as accurate as some of the other testing that's on there. So I, th- I, I got the sense that this was almost a political decision in many circles, Professor, where they just decided here in Ontario is a classic example where uh, the Premier here just doesn't seem to be a big fan of it. They talk about it from time to time. Uh, but the mass distribution of this and getting tested and workplaces and things like that uh, doesn't seem to be popular with a lot of elected officials. Yeah, I, I'm not sure so much the elected. Of, I mean, I, it's it's also a political question at some point. I think it's also really a cultural prejudice of the medical community against rapid testing. I mean, there was just a report uh, by the Lancet, you know, and they say testing, testing not just here, but everywhere. It's underfunded, under resources, under supported, and so we didn't realize, we didn't really appreciate how much of a role it could play, and, and we we bet on vaccines, and that was kind of the obvious thing for everyone. And I think we did really well on that front overall. But I think we, yeah, to our, our, uh, to our detriment, we neglected the potential and the importance of rapid testing. And so now we're speaking now, I, I, I mean, I, I, a bit more positive in the sense that we're seeing them coming out again now after, you know, because last year we were hoping they would be getting out and the federal government bought them actually in fall last, like a year ago. Now, finally, we're deploying them. We're deploying them here in Quebec, where I'm located. And, and here, the, the schools use them really test to stay, right? If someone has a bit of a symptom, then they can use the test. And if they're negative, they can stay at school. Um, we, uh, we could also, uh, well, I think in, in Ontario, from what I've read, they want to use them on as- asymptomatic people in schools, uh, in, in schools with high incidence. So do the regular testing on a bi-weekly basis. And you know, considering that and one of the really challenges with, with COVID-19 is that most infections happen when people are not symptomatic. You know, you don't think you mm-hmm. actually have it, and that's when you infect people. And the only way we could address that is by, by really mass testing of people. The challenge, of course, is that you know, at every given time, unless you're a major outbreak, there's only about 1 in 500, 1,000 people who, who are who having COVID. So, so the cost there, if you really want to test everyone all the time, it's probably too high. So, but what we can do, and rapid tests are a really fantastic tool for that. They are so small and so flexible. You just bring them where the hotspots are, and there you can do them this mass testing of all the people to really quell, quell the, the, the outbreak. And then finally, another option that now has been used in England is also in the test to stay. Because often now it happens when a kid tests positive in a class, well, the whole class is being sent home for two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. But in England, they did now a study that, that, of course, the person who has the disease is being sent home, but then they can test all the close contacts with rapid tests over a period of four or five days. Every day they test them, and as long as you stay negative, you can go to school. And they showed that, you know, they had a randomized study, and though they had one part of the study, people, the contacts would isolate, would not go to school, and then the other arm, the, the, the people would test and stay in school. And they saw that it made no difference. So the, this testing was eff- essentially effective in suppressing the outbreaks in the schools. Well, that's so really what testing, I'm, I'm, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so no. testing is really a way that, you know, it's one of the many tools we can use, and it will allow us to keep a more normal and more effective opera- uh, way of, of going about our lives. And, and I have two small kids. When they come home, I, mean, I have to be home. My wife has to be home. So it has a lot of other impacts. 
I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about the hot spots, and because that's a key issue. I know hindsight's 2020 here, Professor, but uh, as you know, Ontario schools were closed more than any other province in the, in the country. They shut down. Uh, we had a couple of different lockdowns here that were very, very problematic, of course, for small businesses all over the country. How effective would testing have been to localize this instead of shutting everything down as we did in, in, at different times during the pandemic to simply say look at there's a hot spot uh, in Brampton for instance uh, you know in Peel region uh, where there's a lot of uh, factory and warehousing that goes on had they employed the, the t- testing kits there instead of just shutting everything down would, the, would they have been able to localize who can go to work and who couldn't or who could go to school and couldn't instead of shutting everything down as they did with like one big you know blanket coverage instead of uh, specific and targeting yeah so i mean that 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 has always been i mean that has been one of the major arguments for rapid testing and why it's an economic no-brainer so on one hand if you want a rapid test everyone it's really expensive you know you have to run I mean, a whole you, you turn an entire city or a whole community with rapid tests twice a week everyone or 50 percent depending because it will have to be voluntary but on a massive scale but the, the, the payoff is that, yeah, you don't have to shut down. And so it's real. And when you start to make that balance, so there's, there's of course, the human cost. Because you have less people who get infected and mm-hmm. less people end up in hospitals and less people who die. Uh, and less people have these long COVID consequences, which also have, then, which also have personal and also huge economic cost. But then when you look at the economic cost, the cost of shutting down entire factories, of having outbreaks in factories that close down, and this is huge, <laughs> And, and so when you, then, when you put that into the balance, then testing would just very easily pay for itself. And that's really, and so from, you know, so I think, of course, you know, it's always, you know, we haven't done the experiment, but if you had a rapid testing on a large scale, and of course you have to also get the high adoption and there's lots of information messaging that goes with it, you could have prevented a lot of the shutdowns, the, the, the lockdowns. I mean, here in Quebec, we had a three-month uh, curfew. Mm-hmm. This could have to a large extent been probably prevented by a massive out, uh, rollout of rapid testing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so yes, in my opinion, this, this could have made a huge difference. And, and as you mentioned, they're, they're sitting in warehouses someplace in Ottawa. I mean, it's a, they're available. I just don't understand why. Are we relying too much on, on vaccination? And I'm by no means trying to, to belittle vaccinations. I mean, I'm double vaxxed. I hope everybody gets double vaxxed. Uh, but are there, do, are, is there a mindset out there that, well, I got my double vaccination, so I'm bulletproof now. I don't need to worry about testing. Well, you know, I, I, so that was the, I mean, the hope was that the vaccines would be our silver bullet out of this disease. Mm-hmm. But like anything else, nothing is perfect. You know, we have masks, and in the beginning we're against masks, and then we realize, no, they actually work, even though they're not 100% perfect, they make a difference. With vaccines, we thought it would be 100%, but now we realize, well, maybe it's only 80%, and then with the Delta variant, you know, after a while, you might still be transmitting, and of course, we have children who can't be vaccinated yet. And so testing and rapid testing can become the tool where you know right now, right here, are your risks for others, and which you given that they're so cheap, you could also have the opportunity of using them of asymptomatic. And, and by that, and so, you know, given the, I mean, I think we have now tests available, and so I think we could really roll them out. Longer term, we probably need to have a strategy in place, just maybe, and, and, you know, and, and also one of them is actually making sure that our regulatory approval is easy enough so that we get more of these tests, that we have home tests. In Germany, home tests are largely available, they cost about a, a euro, so a bit more like a dollar and a bit, uh, one of the tests. 
So then you can start, you know, you brush your teeth in the morning, you can start to take a test. And not everyone will, but what every case a test catches is, is, is many other cases downstream that one might have, have eliminated. And, uh, and so, so, and so developing these strategies that, that's still uh, something that, that we can work at. That, uh, well, you know, we, we're seeing some movement now. I hope they, they will show some, some benefits. I'm convinced they will if we use them in the proper way. And that will hopefully then be a way of, of deploying them more largely. Because when you look at vaccination rates, I mean, I, I could say I wish everybody would get vaccinated, but we're probably not going to hit 100%. And I know uh, the U.S. just announced a huge uh, investment into their testing program, a billion dollars they're going to be doing over the next little while. But their vaccination rates, after a great start, have fallen off considerably. Only 76% of the American population over 12 years of age have had at least one vaccination. Uh, so the possibility of spread is greater. And as you mentioned, Professor, even with our vaccination rate here in Canada, which I think is about 86%, right now uh there's still the possibility here we're not at herd immunity yet there's still the possibility of spread which is why we're probably in a fourth wave now yeah yeah and so you know and, and so I mean, that's one thing we recognize is the virus the virus will always find the cracks right mm-hmm. whatever strategy you do some people won't some people i mean some people are vulnerable or, or have health issues they can't get vaccinated and we have children so the virus will find these paths. And that's why rapid testing is really great, because you can, you can anticipate. I mean, we know it's going to happen in kids. They're not vaccinated. Well, let's, you know, let's take rapid testing there because, and, and start to protect these places. Or maybe some places didn't anticipate. But now you see it's coming in these type of communities or in these type of workers. Well, let's bring these rapid tests to there and start testing these people in a more, more effective way. And so you know, vaccination is really very crucial. Um, and it, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it worked in a way that we couldn't have anticipated. Now it's not, it's not sterilizing vaccination. We still, I mean, if you have, once you're vaccinated, you have a smaller, you still have a small chance of getting the disease, but the outcome of the disease is going to be much less likely a severe outcome. And you actually can still transmit the disease even. Um, but again, your likelihood of transmitting it to someone else is also reduced. So vaccination have a huge impact. But you know, as I just said, there's still the virus finds the weak point, and that's where he will keep on, 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 on spreading. And so that's where then testing, it's just we need to add multiple layers of protection so that we can make sure that we can, we can run with the, we can keep operating and running the economy and also in, in, in a reasonably safe manner. And until, of course, we have vaccination for all, for really even including small children, we can expect the virus will have an easy kind of an easy game in, in terms of being able to spread around, right? So it's really only when we'll be able to to, to constrain it more that we can then well, start, you know, start thinking uh, having or start thinking less using that or even having big congregations. But then again, you know, every time you have a big congregation, that's a great place for using rapid tests because then you can minimize the chance of having a, a super spreader that would then infect many other people. Well, exactly. Yeah. And we're heading into winter, which means, you know, we're going to be indoors more. And even the experts are telling us that, you know, they're probably going to see a, a, an increase, hopefully not a large spike, but another increase, which is another reason uh, why we wanted to have this discussion. I'm so glad you had some time for us today, Professor, to, to shine the light on this. I think it needs to, to be part of the discussion going forward here. We can't afford to let our guard down, can we? Well, say, well yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for promoting the message. And exactly, no, we can't. And, you know, we... I, I, I see some optimism, too, because I was looking at the... So last year in May, we had like this high optimism that, you know, we had some PCR testing. The summer was really great. 
And, and then the, the cases took off uh, in the fall and we had all the lockdowns. This summer, we had the same rate. We had vaccination. We thought we were good. The Delta was coming. So we could already predict that it would be, uh, it, there would be some outbreaks. The waves started to grow in Quebec and I think in Ontario. Luckily, we're seeing now that they're being much better contained than they were last year. So I think that's really hope for uh, a positive sign. Now, I don't think we should let our guard down. Like you were just saying, we're not, you know, winter's still coming. The cold weather is still coming. We don't know. There might be, there might be another flare-up. And, and I think testing really, I think maybe we're getting around and seeing rapid tests now more useful and maybe they will be deployed in a more effective way. And so, so that could then also contribute to, 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 to make sure that it doesn't really affect us as strong as it did last year. Exactly. Uh, Professor, once again, thank you so much for the time. Stay well. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yes, thank you. You too. Bye. Take care. Professor David Junker from McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, just in time for the long holiday weekend, uh, sticker shock, I guess, if you go to fill up the gas tank on your car. I know that invariably we're used to that on long weekends, but there's a different circumstance that's at play here. Global Sandy Salerno has some details. Price at the pumps went up two cents a liter overnight on average. That means drivers in the GTA are dishing out just under a buck 45 a liter for gas this morning. Drivers here have never paid this much, and a lot of them tried to avoid the price hike by filling up before midnight. Yeah, well, the effect of my traveling, because I live up uh, close to Hamilton, so for me to commute it with these prices is, is too expensive. It's not worth it. The reason why gas prices have gone up is an undersupply of oil and increased demand as people are driving more. If you think this is as high as prices will go, it doesn't appear to be the case. There are predictions we could hit a buck fifty a liter in just a matter of weeks. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So, uh, what's causing this? How long is this going to go on? Two very valid questions. To explore that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining us today. I'm great, and I'm glad to be with you, Bill. Well, I've heard all the, the grumbling and whining about this, and, yeah. oh, it's that, that carbon tax, that damn Trudeau, it's a Trudeau. Yeah. Uh, that's not the cause of what's going on. This is a, it's a much bigger picture here, isn't it? It, it is. So, Bill, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take you back a year. A year ago at this time in 2020, oil oil was trading at $45 a barrel. And there's a little group of people that you may have heard of called OPEC. This is oh, yeah. a cartel of oil-producing nations who don't like $45 a barrel. And they were worried that it might even go lower because a year ago we were all stuck at home, locked down, what have you. So they cut back on their production. They throttled back on, on pumping oil out of the ground, said, well, this is the way we're going to keep prices at $45 a barrel. That got them through the winter months, and then 2021 debuts. We get partway through the year. Vaccines are being distributed. Lockdowns are being relaxed. So guess what? We all started driving again. Demand for gasoline went up, and of course that means demand for oil went up, and so did the prices. Just to give you a sense of it, this week oil has been knocking on the door of $80 a barrel. Eight zero. $80 a barrel. And if you're not good with a calculator, that's approximately a 77% price increase from just a year ago. Now, uh, OPEC is thrilled. And, and frankly, if, if I were the economies of, of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland, I'm kind of thrilled too. It's the best news they've had in a long time. But in the meantime, you and I here in Ontario are facing the price of this. Is it due to the carbon tax? No. The carbon tax went up another small amount 
on April 1st of this year, but it contributes 8.8 cents a liter. So that's what it costs. It's not a variable amount. It doesn't change by the basic price of gasoline. It's a fixed amount, and that happened back in April. It is true, April 1st, 2022, it's going to go up another $5 a ton, which means the cost is going to go to 11 cents a liter from 8.8 cents a liter. But that's not what's doing nearly a 40-cent rise in the price of a liter of gasoline just over the last few months. Uh, and we should uh, expand our discussion here, too, because my uh, impression from what I've read of this anyway so far, Marvin, is that uh, home heating flow, natural gas, is also going to be impacted this way. Yes. And, uh, again, a slightly different set of circumstances. And, and, Bill, if you don't mind, before we turn to natural gas, just to finish off on gasoline, your, sure. your reporter said, well, you know, it might get $1.50. I have terrible news for you. It's even <laughs> higher. And now here's why. Uh, Mr. Biden and other world leaders have called upon OPEC to say, okay, folks, you cut back on production last year, turn on the tap, start pumping more oil. You know, demand is up, we're flying, so demand for fuel, for airplanes, of all these things have gone up. And, and OPEC said, oh, okay, well, we hear you. We're going to start pumping more out of the ground in, wait for it, Bill, November. November. Well, this is the first week of October. What are you talking about? So we think it's possible that before the end of this month or in early November, oil could go up to as much as $100 a barrel. That's another 25% increase. Forget $1.40 a liter. Forget $1.50 a liter. This could go to 160 165 maybe even 170 before OPEC turns on the tops. Now, look. It's a cartel. It's very unpredictable, but what it's going to do, they could do something faster. But remember, they're loving this because they're making lots and lots and lots of money. And many of these economies that were struggling in 2020, they kind of like the fact that the Western world is paying for them right now. Different story than natural gas. Natural gas, part of its problems, uh, there's, again, two big problems. One is demand has gone up. Not so much in Canada yet. We're not really into our prime heating season, but it's been a cool a fall so far in Europe. So Europe has been demanding more natural gas, sent prices up in places like uh, the United Kingdom and in Germany, and they normally get most of their natural gas from two sources, Norway and Russia. Uh, Russia is another country that has been very, very slow to increase production. They like the fact that uh, with a limited supply, prices have been shooting up, and so they're seeing higher prices there, and of course that translates to the world market as well. Uh, which is problematic, and, and I've seen some stories, I'm sure you have too, on, on some of the national news, watching Global National last night. Uh, they've got lineups at gas stations in the U.K. Some gas stations have closed because uh, they don't have supply. Uh, I am old enough to remember back in, I was it the mid-70s, the late 70s, wasn't really? that, Marvin, where that was happening in North America, and it was, again, those, those lads from OPEC uh, that just decided to turn the tap off, and you had gas stations that were closed on weekends. They had yeah. lineups about 30, 40 cars long. Uh, that's what they actually. That's when the Americans dropped their speed limit down to 55. That was to try to conserve fuel. Uh, are we heading toward that kind of circumstance again? So I'm going to say no. I don't think so because remember we are uh, pumping our own oil out of places like Alberta or in the Midwest of the United States. And, and I hate to use this word out loud, but the fracking continues. They are still extracting oil from the shale rock, what have you. So uh, we're going to we're going to be fine in terms of of a supply. Uh, but the problem here in Canada and the United States is we weren't anticipating that the world uh, demand would shoot up as fast as it did, and we weren't anticipating that OPEC wasn't going to match. So it just takes us a while 
to turn our taps back on and get them up a little higher. This will be a self-correcting thing, and we will see prices come down. They won't come down to a dollar a liter. No one should be looking at that. That was a unique set of circumstances a year ago. But we should get back down to a dollar twenty-five, dollar thirty, probably early in 2022. But for the moment, there's a lot of pain in your wallets. Um, and, and Bill, just one other quick note. You mentioned about the lineups. There was even gas rationing. This was in the early 1970s, 71, 72, 73. There was even gas rationing, meaning that when you went to the pump, you were only able to put in a certain amount, and then I'm sorry, you can't get any more. I've got to save it for the other people in line. It's and to be fair, I guess yeah. Back in when that was happening in the seventies, you know, we painted a pretty bleak picture there. Uh, there was no oil sands oil production of any concern at the time, and very little production going on in the states as well. So I mean, we were totally dependent on on Middle Eastern oil at that stage. And I know that circumstances have changed, and I know there's a lot more oil production going on in North America now, uh, especially in the states because of uh, some of the technologies that they're using right yep. now. So. With that, uh, I, I, I guess initially people would say, well, that we should be okay. But got, those guys are making as much money. I mean, as long as the price goes up, uh, these guys are going to be happy campers. So why not just say, okay, we'll turn the tap on right now uh, and the price will go up? Or is it simply supply and demand? Are they afraid there's going to be a dip again? I don't think they're afraid there's going to be a dip. So the, a couple of problems in Canada. You just can't, quote, turn the tap on that fast. You have to ramp things up. And, and you can remember it was just a year ago that we were hearing about, you know, oil wells being shut down, operations being shut down in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. Look, we can't even afford to have people around. We're not making enough money, so we're, we're going to save this. You can't just reverse that on a dime. So that's why I think in the longer term we will be fine. But it's also why uh, just earlier this week, and I know this is only Friday, but it was on Monday that the Canadian government invoked a treaty with the United States around pipelines because Gretchen Whitmer, God bless her, the governor of Michigan, was threatening to cut down, shut down the Line 3 pipeline being operated by TransCanada Pipeline. Uh, this is a major source of oil from the West to refineries in places like Sarnia. Yes, it does run through Michigan, so it also feeds some refineries in Michigan. And she, for whatever her reasons were, wanted to shut that down. And Canada said, no, no, look, we have a treaty with you. You can't be doing that. The first time it's been invoked in, uh, since 1977, so it's roughly 45 years uh, that we pulled our weight. Because, again, we cannot afford to have that pipeline shut down at this time. Well, and I know that Governor Whitmer is doing this for environmental reasons. They're concerned about a possible leak and the damage it would do to the Great Lakes. We understand that. And yep. How does this incident, though, impact that debate that's going on? Because by invoking that treaty, it's pretty much dragging the Biden administration into the fight. And I know they wanted to stay away from that. They, they, they basically said this is between Michigan and Canada. Uh, the, 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 the federal administration didn't want to get into this. But uh, since that was a federal treaty, they're going to have to get into the game here one way or another. Uh, and take a side. I'm, uh, shutting this thing down is only going to make this situation we're in now a lot worse, isn't it? Worse on both sides of the borders. And so that's why yeah. I think they did this, was to say, I know, Mr. Biden, your administration doesn't want to get involved, but given what's going on with global oil prices, going on with gasoline prices on both sides of the border, this benefits you as much as it benefits us. Pl please get involved. Please help us on this. And I think he will. Uh, you know, again, everyone's trying to walk this fine line between being environmentally friendly and, and weaning us away from oil, but also understanding that we aren't there today and we need the oil supplies today. I think it'll be interesting to see how he reacts. 
Again, at the moment, the United States is a little more focused on their debt crisis and debt ceiling crisis and the the grand kabuki theater around that taking place in the Senate and Congress. But I think ultimately, again, this will be supported, uh, and and Gretchen will be said, you know, we hear you, we'll find another way to deal with your problem, but shutting this pipeline down at this time on this day is probably not in the cards. We, We need that oil. All right, do a little crystal balling for me here, if you could, Marvin. Uh, if this continues, and it looks like it's going to continue through the yep. winter, especially when it comes to the natural gas and heating our homes, uh, there's going to be pressure on the Canadian government to say, or the, even the Ontario government, any government, to say, okay, you've got to help consumers. And Denver, where it got really bad there five or six years ago, uh, they actually had to subsidize an awful lot of people because we had some horrific stories of people that were, well, basically left in the cold and didn't have any heat, didn't have any hydro in their homes because they couldn't afford to pay the bills. Uh, th- this increase is going to be problematic for a lot of people. Is there going to be pressure on, on the federal government and probably even the Ford government here in Ontario uh, to do something about this? I know that you know when he was running for premier four years ago, Doug Ford promised he was going to lower energy prices. That's not going to happen, uh, but he might have to subsidize them. Well, you know, you raise, you raise a good question. Now, go back a couple of years ago, the whole heat versus heat debate was around electricity, and mm-hmm. electricity is a, an Ontario utility, whether it's Hydro One or it's the, uh, the distribution network that runs the grid around there. There was some involvement directly for Ontario. Uh, at the moment, we actually have a private sector interest, en- uh, Enbridge and Union Gas, are usually the natural gas distributors. Now, the uh, Ontario Energy Board does help them when they go to set prices, but other than that, we sort of say, let let the private sector do it. So I think it will be interesting. You're absolutely right. There's going to be tremendous pressure on both, uh, or I should say on provinces, as well as the federal government, to see what they can do. But I'm actually not sure what they can do. I guarantee you when uh, the House reconvenes, this is the Parliament, uh, in Ottawa uh, around October 18th, so in about two weeks, um, I suspect people are going to say, well, you see, why don't you just take the gas, uh, take the carbon tax off for a year or so, and let's get everyone so they can buy it more cheaply. You know, again, our, our test on how environmentally friendly we want to be is during a crisis or during a difficult time, do we back away from all this? I don't think Justin will. So his challenge, and this will also be Christia Freeland, I'm pretty sure she's going to remain as finance minister. What can you do to help people and yet at the same time still be environmentally friendly? We've never tried subsidizing uh, natural gas prices in this country. And so I'm just, I'm just not quite sure what you do to get you through this, uh, other than, again, maybe finding some sort of heating grant or something else you can give people a tax credit for. Well, I, you know, it's kind of shaken us out of our, our, our lethargy, I guess. A lot of us are feeling pretty good about the fact that, you know, we're, we're moving forward now. The government's uh, committed to, to you know, the environment, uh, the carbon tax that the majority of Canadians actually agree with. Uh, we're starting to build electric cars. And I, I, I've talked to a lot of people, and I'm sure you've heard from a lot of folks, Marvin, that said, yeah, my next car is probably going to be a, an electric car, at least a hybrid anyway, because that's, that's the future. Yep. But now all of a sudden we say, hey, here and now, you know, I, I, how am I going to heat my house, you know, for the next four months? And hey, I need gas for the car that I've had now, let alone what I'm going to do for my next car. So it's you. You're right. We have reached almost a crisis point here, and we're going to be looking for government action on this. We are now. I also want to say to people, you know, you do have to keep this in a bit of context. Natural gas is still one of the cheapest ways to to heat your home, and if gas natural gas prices go up by ten percent or or twenty percent, even, you know, my bill, which was maybe a hundred dollars a month or two hundred dollars a month during the worst of the season, might go up to two hundred and forty. Many of us can't afford it. We don't like it, and that's typically how most of us uh, react to these things. We don't want to pay a hundred bucks to fill our gas tank in our automobile. We complain about it, but 
we don't really have any other choice unless we want to trade in that car today. So most of us are going to get through, but I think it's going to be for the poorer Canadians, or let's say maybe some senior Canadians who don't have the same kind of income levels coming in, what can be done for them. So don't be shocked uh, in the throne speech from Parliament, we're going to hear that again the week of October 18th, there will probably be something mentioned about this, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of a program they come. Will it be like a COVID program, a time-limited thing, we're only going to do it for this season just to get you through the worst of it, or will it be something permanent the government adds in? Keep in mind, we still have a minority parliament, and they need the support of somebody like mm, Jagmeet Singh, uh, so I'd actually be listening to what he says on this, because chances are, if the government's going to get their budgets passed, what have you, they're going to need Jagmeet, and they, he may come up with his own idea on how to get us through this little energy crisis. Yeah, and add to that, of course, the fact that there's going to be an election here in Ontario next June as well. And, uh, if, you know, if we go through a cold winter, an awful lot of folks may be a little upset with the Premier. So there's there's going to be some heat, I guess, on, on both levels of government. Marvin, glad you could join us today and put some, uh, uh, some context to this. Really appreciate it. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. We'll talk again. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.